This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. Good morning. How is the sound? Is it okay? Oh, okay, good, good. Quite a week, quite a dramatic week. Um, so we'll leave we'll leave the worldly week aside, and uh, we'll take up. We'll, we'll also leave Yuan Wu aside. We have been listening to the words of Yuan Wu this week during Sashin, great Song Dynasty, um, Chinese uh, Song Dynasty Zen teacher, compiler of the Blue Cliff Record, uh, because we've been working through these cases one by one in the Blue Cliff Record. So we'll go back to that, but we're going to skip way far into the book, and we're going to look at Case 88, called Gensha's Person of Three Disabilities. Gensha said to the assembly, the masters are always talking about the necessity of delivering, which is saving or helping, delivering people and benefiting sentient beings. Supposing you met up with someone who is deaf, mute, and blind. How would you guide him? Being blind, he couldn't see your gestures. Being deaf, he couldn't hear your words. And being mute, he couldn't speak, even if he wanted him to. So how would you guide him? If you couldn't guide him, the Buddha's dharma could not benefit him. The second part of the case goes like this. A monk asked Unman for his instructions on this point. Unman said, make your bows. The monk did so. Unman poked at him with his staff and the monk drew back. Unman said, you're not blind. Then Unman said, come closer. The monk approached. Unman said, you are not deaf. Next, next, Unman said, do you understand? The monk replied, no, I don't understand. Unman said, you're not mute. And at this, the monk had an insight. End of case. And so Unman and Unman and Gensha, our brother monks, were brother monks studying, studying under the same teacher. Um, and so just to be clear about this particular case that we're presenting using today, first we have Gensha proposing to his congregation this problem of how do you help somebody who is blind, deaf, and mute. And then this monk hearing this, going to this other teacher and asking for his instruction about that particular point and Unman's response. So for, for those of you joining us this morning um, for our regular program, we're also obviously finishing our five-day Rohatsu Sishin. And Sishin is just a microcosm of our life, a microcosm that plays out, in this case, over five days. 
like life, Sashin involves uh, going through all the various mind states from elation to disappointment, frustration to contentment, confusion to clarity. We go through physical pain and the release from that pain. And we have to deal with thwarted expectations. And all of these worlds, so to speak, arise and fall while simply sitting still. The mind, this is this is mind training, learning the landscape of the mind, its crevasses, its hills, its many contours. And so this is training for our life. What's different about Sashin is we have the tool of attention. We have the tool of the practice to return to. And hopefully, for those who have done Sashin, you're beginning to see what a great gift this practice really is. We're also in Sashin learning how to apply how to apply effort, which is, to my mind, one of the most important aspects of the path. Coming to a sustainable, coming into uh, a sustainable relationship with effort, and again, then applying that to the rest of our life, because. What good is it if we don't apply it? As I mentioned the other day, Goethe said that knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough, we must act. But of course, effort is a, is a <laughs> to say the least, a complicated topic. Right, right effort, right effort or correct effort is a part of the Eightfold Path. It's also a quality of the Bodhisattva. The Eightfold Path is divided, its Eightfold components are divided into three general categories. The first category is the wisdom category containing right view, right thought. The second category is the general category of um, the moral application in our life, which contains right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then this third category is the category of samadhi or mental discipline. And this contains right mindfulness, right concentration, and right effort. Virya, as it's called in Sanskrit. And along with this word effort, uh, virya also means energy. And this energy effort, energy slash effort, is very individualistic. It, uh, what is right effort for one person may not be for another person. And uh, what is right at one time for one person may not be right at another time. So this means in order to practice right effort, we need to know ourselves. Right effort in the Dharma is really seen as a way to combat, to work with these states of torpor, of laziness, of apathy, and also of habit. All of which we know can be so hypnotic, so easy to find ourselves in dulled out states of mind. And this just doesn't mean tiredness the kind of tiredness we encounter in Sashin 
although that's one aspect, but more of the habitual hypnotic dullness that can overcome us as we go through our weeks. So learning to apply effort skillfully is something that is a key to practice. I remember how enthusiastic I was when I first came to the Zen Center and began to practice, how much energy I had. But then over time, guess what? It began to fade, uh, like getting a new car or getting that Amazon package in the mail that you've been waiting for. And the newness is so nice. And then, of course, that newness rubs off. It, it dulls. The shine, the shine dulls. And so the question is, then what? Of course, from a practice point of view, that actually is a good thing. Because then we can find a deeper relationship with our practice. Something that will sustain us. And... So Sashin is one way, one of the skillful ways to do that. One of the skillful ways we energize our practice. A number of you have said in Doksan that you do feel re-energized. You're recommitted. Despite how challenging Sashin is physically as well as mentally. A challenge in practice is necessary. <clears throat> Excuse me. A meeting with adversity is necessary. Uh, we fit, you know, um, this is, this is, well, meeting with adversity is necessary. That is, if we want to, if we want to, as we spoke about yesterday, liberate our intrinsic energy. Because, because, uh, because we do have this storehouse of energy that is untapped. And to tap it, we need to shock our system. That is how things are liberated. So daily practice is, of course, important. In fact, essential. But Yasutani Roshi said that a seven-day sashin can be equal to a year or more of daily practice. Because in daily life, in daily practice, what happens is we come and go from the zendo as we want to, and we, um, in many ways, are working in alignment with our preferences. But during sashin, if we sign up, we sign on the dotted line, so to speak, especially when we're here in person, uh, you don't move during zazen. You follow the schedule and you're held to that standard. Not by just by a teacher, but by everybody in the Sashin. Because in a sense, what happens is every other Sashin participant is counting on us. You can really feel the energy as people leave, come and go. So Sashin only works really if everybody does their part. There is no paid staff. I've seen when I've seen this happen when newcomers sign up for a Sashin, um, not really knowing what it's about, hearing that they want to come to a silent retreat, and then um, getting assigned to clean a bathroom, you know, clean the toilet or. Uh, 
dust for an hour and a half or two hours in the morning and being so insulted. How, how dare you ask me to, to do such menial work? I signed up for this retreat, you know. But we all do our part. But most importantly, during Sashin, as those of you have just gone through it, know that the most important part is that it shows us the territory of our minds that we really didn't know existed, or maybe half knew. We also discover during Sashin that at times that we find the most energy when we're not caught up in thinking, analyzing. I hope all of you have had some taste of that. And so our effort in that sense stops being a forced thing. It takes on its own life. And what we find when that happens is that so much of what we struggle with physically, for example, we find that that actually is a product of the mind. Outside of Sashin, I see this all the time. People, you no doubt, maybe even fall into this category. When we have some physical ailment, of course, we try everything. We try every supplement, every pain medication. Or if our energy is dull, we look to supplements. Uh, maybe I'll take some testosterone. Maybe I'll take some uh, a multivitamin. Maybe I'll, you know, we go to Rite Aid and comb the shelves for the, the perfect thing. Or maybe the co-op, get that organic version And yet, despite taking all of those supplements, all of those medications, somehow the pain still persists. That sluggishness still uh, plagues us. So it's very curious when during Sashin, without taking any supplements, when our mind clears, then suddenly the pain clears. When the mind clears, suddenly the sluggishness evaporates and we can find ourselves in uh, feeling much younger, much more energized, much more in tune with a natural kind of effort. And so we put so much of an effort or emphasis in this society on treating the body, but we don't realize the interconnection between the body and the mind. Of course, they are not two things. Everything's become so medicalized. And so when doctors can't help us, of course, we get discouraged. Uh, so, so fed up with the establishment, which is understandable. But I want all of us to consider how directly our physical being is tied to our emotional state, to our mind state, and how much we ruminate or doubt or indulge in habitual patterns of thought, how that contributes to our physical state of being. Now, part of the reason we, we return over and over again to pain medications and supplements and the medical establishment is because there's such a stigma associated with mental affliction. And we have a hard time accepting that what we suffer from originates in the mind. You know, God forbid that we 
that the cause of our unexplained pain or lack of energy is due to how we use our minds. So right effort is owning that. Master Woman said in a verse, rather than giving the body relief, give relief to the mind. When the mind is at peace, the body is not distressed. If the body and mind are both set free, why would a holy hermit seek to become a lord? In other words, when your body and mind are clear, why would we seek anything? So during Sashin, we experience many blocks. There can be a great deal of pain at times, mental and physical. And yet, again, we discover that at times that disappears and suddenly things open up. We can feel heartbroken and suddenly our heart swells. It's very revealing how suddenly, how suddenly the mind can shift, the body can shift. It's if, if, we, if we really take that in, how is it that it shifts from moment to moment? All within, all these changes can happen within a round, over a day, and from day to day. So in this case from today, going back to the koan, Gensha sets up this hypothetical scenario. He says, we all take vows to save many beings, but if someone were blind, deaf, and mute, how could you help them? Sometimes this is called the three diseases. The, the, the biggest disability that we all face that I've been trying to get at is the mind that is consumed by thought, the mind that limits, the mind that says, no, that's not possible, the mind that criticizes, rejects, gets caught in preferences, in doubts, and believes that these thoughts are real. A discourse that the Buddha gave, encouraging his followers to be more mindful of what they nourish. I spoke about this earlier this year, both physically but also mentally. The more we use a muscle, the stronger it gets. And the more we doubt ourselves, the more cloudy our mind gets. What we feed gains life. Tell me what you pay attention to and I'll tell you who you are, somebody said. The more we feed our doubts, the more they grow. And one of the things as a teacher that one has to be aware of is when students invite you to collude with their perceived limitations. And so it's a job of any good teacher not to take that bait. Anybody who's a teacher knows that students constantly invite that mind of I can't. And so the job of a teacher, the job of practice is to help us see beyond the ways we, to the, see the ways we bind ourselves the way we mute ourselves, the way we blind and deafen ourselves. And so this question that Gensha proposes seems hypothetical, but it's really about us. How do you help someone who believes that they are disabled, limited? How do you Free yourself from those limitations. Being blind, being deaf, being mute. Of course, from one point of view, these states are limiting. We all know people who are blind, 
blinded by arrogance, blinded by greed, We all know people who are deaf, deaf to people's help, people that selectively hear only what they want to. Of course, we see that maybe in close to half the country now, don't we? We also see how we can lose our voice We can lose our voice out of fear, out of anxiety. And so Gensha may be pointing to these disabilities and asking us, how do we help? And yet, being a Zen koan, there's another way of looking at this. Uh, There is another kind of blindness deafness and muteness in Zen. A verse from the tradition says, though it fills the eyes, he does not see form. Though it fills the ears, she does not hear sounds. Manjushri is always covering his eyes and Avalokiteshvara is always covering her ears. So in This sense, to be blind, means that there is no me that sees. Seer, seeing, and the seen all disappear. And yet, somehow functioning still occurs. Hearer, hearing, and the heard all merge. And the whole world becomes the bird outside, the slam of a door, the rustling of clothing, the crackling of fire in the stove. Who is it that hears at that point when the mind is completely absorbed? Is there anybody there? Kyosei once asked a monk, what is that noise outside? The monk said, Master, it's that sound of raindrops. Kyosei said, People's thinking is inverted, diluted by their own selves, and they pursue things. Things and labels. We use labels. We use labels like raindrops. But what is it really? If someone is blind, deaf, and mute, how would you guide him? When you're truly blind, deaf, and mute, there is no need for guidance, is there? What is guidance in Zen? When people first come to workshops, introduction, instruction. You could say that they need a certain amount of instruction, but, you know, you know how to sit, the explanations of the sort of the mechanics of Zen, maybe a little bit about Buddhism. But at the same time, if we explain too much, we risk cheapening one's experience. Sometimes when we find ourselves explaining, it comes out of a deep distrust of the person's innate ability. And this is true for ourselves as well. Oh, I don't know how to do this. I can't do that. When we say things like that, we are selling ourselves completely short. Zen asks us to dig deep beyond subject and object. Uh, Guishang was meditating late into the night when his teacher Baishang saw him and asked, who is sitting here in the dark? 
and Guishan says, it's me, Guishan. Bai Chong asked Guishan to stir up the coals and get the fire going. And Guishan went to the hearth and searched for live coals, but found none and said, the fire's gone out. Bai Chong got off his seat, took up the poker and plunged it deep into the ashes, found a small live ember holding it up and said, what's this? Moving the coals around for a few minutes, you're not gonna get anywhere. We have to build trust in ourselves. So in the second act of this koan, the monk, a monk who heard Gensha's question to the assembly about how you help a blind, deaf, and mute person goes to another teacher named Unman for help on that matter. And Unman met the monk right where he was coming from. He asked the monk to bow and thrust his stick at him. And of course, the monk jumps back. Clearly, the monk isn't blind and asks, he asks the monk to come forward. The monk does. Clearly, he's not deaf. And then he asks the monk a question. Do you understand? And the monk responds, no. Clearly, the monk can speak. You're not blind, you're not deaf, you're not mute. You're the one right here. Let's not speculate about some hypothetical blind or deaf person. Gensho is inviting that speculation as a trap see what kind of flies he could get with that honey of speculation. Unman instead goes right to the heart of the matter. Let's not speculate. And this monk was in a state of receptivity, immediately responding without thought. Just like in Sishin, we drop right to the heart of the matter we abandon speculation and mere curiosity. So this monk who jumps back at Unman's poke or comes forward when the monk, when Unman says, come here, or responds without hesitation, when he asks, do you understand? This monk was in a state of emptiness, totally empty, not lost in thought. To have insight into our real nature, we have to be empty, a state when subject and object drop away. When people reach this state, There is no person that sees, no person that hears, and no person that speaks. There is just this. Each sound is you. Each form is you. And no words appear. Nothing is ever spoken despite the lips and tongue moving. From this state, we then see that from the beginning, we never needed guidance because we don't lack a thing. Can we see that? The fundamental truth of Buddhism is born out of experience, not cognition. That we are the whole. 
even with all of our faults, even with all of our anger and despair and anxiety and greediness. But the way to realize that, the only way that I know of to really see that wholeness is to become truly disabled, to disable the mind of judgment, to disable the mind that is confused, to disable the mind of can and can't. To see without our eyes, to hear without our ears, to speak without using our tongues. Feelings of lack come from the mind of duality. Feelings of dis being disabled come from that mind of duality. This is why we suffer so much. This is why there's so much pain and anguish and dis-ease in the world. Because of the constant need for the ego to pull things apart, to split the world into self and other, into seer and seen, hearer and heard, speaker and spoken. Many of you are beginning to get intimate with your practice. This week, we, as I said, we looked at some of the teachings of Yuan Wu. And as a reminder, he said that if you want to attain intimacy, don't seek it. If you attain through seeking, you've already fallen into interpretive understanding. This is especially true because this treasury extends through all times, clearly evident, empty, and bright. Since time without beginning, it has been your own basic root. So by engaging with the training, coming to Sushin, we begin to know what true intimacy is. And in that process, we shed more and more of the mind that sees things as incomplete. Of course, this can be a rocky road, but it happens. So keep up the practice. Keep coming back as you're able to, not to any one form, but really just returning to the mind of clarity, of the breath. And why don't we, we have a few minutes, I want to invite people Anybody who would like to say anything, ask questions, make comments, and then we'll stay the four vows together. I just want to thank you three for pulling this together and somehow working it out and making it happen. Um, thank you for everybody who comes to Sashin and makes it happen. Of course, it can't happen, like I said, without everybody doing their part. Passion, this is Anne. Hi, Anne. Hi. You said something a few minutes ago that I think is relevant, and I was writing it down, but I lost the last word. Uh -oh. He said, the more we feed our doubt, the more we, can you recall that? 
or maybe you're taping it this and I can listen to it. Well, why don't you fill that in? The more let's let's just try. The more more I feed my doubt, the more what? The more I believe. Yeah, right. It's a closed loop. It's a closed loop. Feeds itself, grows stronger. Practices intervening, as I always say, it's putting a wrench in the works, throwing, throwing something in to stop the momentum. And in Zen practice, we stop the momentum simply by having a practice to return to, to interrupt the mind of, of habit, of confusion, of doubt, which are so believable at times. Thank you. That's why it's so important to see these as hierarchical in a way, you know, to when before we come to practice, we, we've, we invest so much in our doubts. We, they, they are so believable. Uh, We're trying to knock those down to the bottom rung. We're never going to probably get rid of them completely, but we want to knock them down to their place and the practice goes above them. You understand? It's it's it takes precedence. Yes. Becomes, it's it becomes the road more traveled, and the doubts become the load the road less traveled. Hi, Tesh. And the other day you mentioned um, uh, that book, and I wanted to get the reference. Um, the Ch- the Chan. Um, wrecking crew who uh, would appreciate the reference to that passage. Sure. That's called China root. David Hinton, China root. You say David Hinton? Hinton. Yeah. David Hinton. Um, Thank you. Yeah. For people who don't know in his very opening words of that book, he refers to the Chan masters of China as being like wrecking crews, you know? That's, people come to practice thinking it's just gonna be all stars and light and rainbows and, and little do they know that really we're trying to wreck the mind of habit and doubt and all the uh, uh, hindrances, obstructions. I thought that was pretty powerful. Yeah. I don't know how to phrase it exactly, but we're talking about um, the seer, what's being seen, seeing. Mm-hmm. I, I understand letting go of the seer and letting go of what's being seen, but um, I think I'm grappling with seeing, hearing, tasting, touching. Like, is that something to be let go of or is that something to... Merge with, I guess, or same same thing. To merge with something means to let go. Really, they're really one and the same. Um, how is that possible? Well, um, w- when you talk about letting go, what that implies is that there is something sticky that you're letting go of, right? Something troubling that you're letting go of, and in Zen, it always comes down to the little tyrant, me, the me, the little tyrant that we are le- with, that is so sticky. And so when we merge with whatever's at hand, our work, the person we're with, the sound, the tyrant, the me is gone. There is only sound, there is only activity. And then we are free. There's no seer anymore. There's no scene. There's no organ of perception, the ear. There's no act of perceiving. And there's no person who perceives. 
all three collapse into one. Kaka! Just that. This is the Zen way of resolving problems. Of totally merging. And that can't be thought of. We can't think our way into that state. It has to be experienced. I wish you could. I wish you could just go, okay. You know, um, like when I was a kid and I watched a TV cartoon um, called uh, The League of Justice. The, uh, it, was, it was, you know, Superman and everybody. And, uh, and there were two super characters named the Wonder Twins. And um, they, would, they would clink their rings together and go, Wonder Twin powers activate form of... And then they, one guy would say, form of a bucket. And he would take the shape of a bucket. And then the, lady, the girl would say, shape of water. Boom. And then she'd end up in the bucket. And then they could go put out a fire. You know, so, you know, I wish it would be like that where we could just go, you know, Dharma powers activate, bam. And then we could just become the thing itself. <laughs> Sorry, that's a, that's a Gen X reference right there. Anything else? Okay. Why don't we recite the four vows together followed by three prostrations and the end of Sashin. Thank you. The four vows. All beings without number, I bow to
Nice to see everybody. And um, thanks for joining for Sushin and, and for this morning. Uh, we'll have, uh, we're back on track for regular schedule this week. Tuesday uh, sit, Thursday sit, and then Sunday. Um, also, feel free to join us on Facebook Live for the morning sits uh, this coming week. And um, anybody else have any announcements, any suggestions, uh, anything like that that want to bring up? Ten days, Hashim. What? Ten days. Ten days. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're in charge. <laughs> I have a request. Yes. The intro that you read to that book, um, kind of root. Would it be possible for you to post that on the uh, on the uh, Facebook? No, because no. I, I because I just have it. I don't have it where I. It's not you typed out. You know. Okay. Um, what I book. what I read from was just a PDF, so I, I can't. Yeah, but um, I'm sure it's available online. You know, just look it up. In fact, I, I, this it reminds me, I think Dana's been reading a book called... Um, oh, um, I just finished. It's called... The, it's either The Circle of the Way or The Way of the Circle. Um, I can post it online, but it's really, really good. It was a history of uh, Zen Buddhism all the way from Bodhidharma coming into China, and it was beautiful. Yeah, so that got me thinking between this book, China Root, and The Circle of the Way that we would take up a class on the, the history, tracing the history of Buddhism from its emergence into modern times. And I think it would be kind of interesting. It would be obviously didactic, you know, it would be more intellectual, uh, but uh, might be a fun thing to do with all of you. So if you're interested, maybe just shoot me a note so I can kind of just get a sense of interest. Um, and if not, that's okay. Something else. Okay. Thank you.